You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Vet Chat. It's the final episode of 2021. This month, I spoke to Lucy Scott. She's a vet behaviorist, and she talks about common behavior issues in cats and dogs. In particular, separation anxiety, how to differentiate from separation-related behaviors, red flags, and how we can manage and treat these. I also talked to her about when we should be referring behavior cases, and Lucy shares some interesting behavior differences between domestic dogs and wolves. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Vet Chat. We hope you have a great festive season and we'll see you again next year. Thank you, Lucy, for coming on The Vet Chat podcast. You're very welcome. Excited to be here. Just to start things off, can you give us a bit of a background as to your clinical experience? So I graduated in 2015 and I did six years of mixed practice, every species James Harriet practice, doing cats, dogs, horses, cattle, sheep. We moved to Raglan in 2017. That was a, a mostly sheep and beef role, but with mixed after hours and everything out really, other than with a focus on sheep and beef and consultancy. And then at the beginning of the year, I moved to part-time smallies and did my examinations in veterinary behavior in June. That was sort of prompted by, I had an accident and I got kicked by a calf and given a concussion. And I realized that the full-time large animal work wasn't actually for me anymore. There was a lot of sort of anxiety about that and after hours. And that I was really keen on this behavior stuff. And it was probably something that I should follow up because there was a real need for it in New Zealand. So how did you first even identify that there was a need for it? I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of animals with behavior problems. But I've talked to another vet who's gone and done a specialty and it's all well and good being interested in stuff, but how do you know sort of how much competition you have in terms of other vets doing the same thing? What made you sort of realize that there was enough of a need to be worth doing this specialization? So when you look at memberships, so a membership of the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists, they actually tell you how many vets have a membership and then how many have a fellowship in New Zealand. So I'm the eighth person to do a membership in New Zealand. It was quite sort of good to see because they tell you whereabouts in New Zealand they are. I think there's only five of us who are doing behaviour work in the North Island. So what stimulated the interest in doing the behaviour stuff apart from clearly there must be some sort of demand? Always been really interested in training and behaviour and then, I don't know, it just sort of snowballed when I started doing it. I did a clinic with a horse which was positive reinforcement training. One of the conversations I had while I was there was about learning theory and how animals learn but also how behavior problems develop and it just sort of prompted a, re- a sort of thought in my head that really there's a real need for us to understand behavior at, coming from a learning theory point of view not just in training but also in the vet world and also how things like fear and anxiety develops and I just sort of started collecting CPD points from there in both my personal life because I was training my horses and my dogs and my cat even and then also just realized that they were, they were all connected and started doing things like the fear-free pets have a certification 
which is yep. specifically for Victs to try and reduce fear and anxiety in the Vic clinic. Too. I didn't realise you could try a cat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got a food and a, and a marker, and he's super keen. Uh, Jiminy sits, spins, kind of touches a paw to your hand. Comes when he's called, which is a really yep. handy one. You have to be pretty um, patient with them. You ask them sometimes, and they look at you and they go, mm, "Not so sure that that's a high enough price for me to do that." Whereas the dogs are like, "Anything, I'll do anything for just a pet." Whereas yep. the cats be like, mm, "Pay me properly." Doesn't really surprise me to be fair. But they're very, very clever, and you can teach all sorts of behaviours with food and a marker. One of the questions that I did want to ask is what are some of the most common behaviour problems that you see in practice? Well, we'll start with cats then, shall we? Because I actually do see a few cases of cats. I've seen intercat aggression, a lot of stress, a lot of marking behaviour. There was a cat that was attacking her owner, and it was related to the fact that the other cat was attacking her. And pain, that was a common one. In dogs, I see a lot of nuisance behaviours, like pulling on the lead and jumping up, but also things like fear, anxiety, noise sensitivity, aggression of all kinds. Um, reactivity. Separation anxiety is one of the ones that I see a lot of and it's often related to other anxiety issues too like noise sensitivity. We'll get into more detail about separation anxiety in a second but one of the things I was curious about is there is you know a vast array of behaviour problems that vets can see in practice. Some that you can medicate for and others maybe not as much. At what point do you think that vets should be considering referring to you? I, I appreciate it's a little bit of a difficult question because it's not a black and white answer. It's a very good question though because it's actually one of the times they say that I should be referring to me is actually if you're deciding to medicate something because a medication alone is, is useful but for the best results we need a behaviour modification plan in place as well. So there's things in the environment that we can change to make an animal more settled if anxiety is one of the causes, but also desensitizing them to whatever it is that is scaring them and creating new patterns of behavior is as important as putting them on the medication. And in fact, I see a lot of animals without the medication and they tend to do pretty good with a behavior modification plan alone and the medication is like the little cherry on top that makes it go faster rather than yeah. the beal. I've spoken to a lot of vets who've got things like they've got a puppy that's biting and those things are actually quite useful to send to me because I can teach the people how to deal with those things from that all the way up to you know uh, an aggressive animal that they can't even touch in the vet clinic. There's a big range of behaviors that I deal with. In terms of those aggressive dogs, have you had to do many since you've qualified? Yeah, I've had a few aggressive dogs. Actually, I'm still doing a little bit of locoming, so it's been quite interesting. And to be honest, most of the time with aggressive or scared animals, I go, cool, guys, your dog's way over threshold. We're going to send you away and come back with some medication later and try it in a different way. Or I will reach straight for sedation because it's not worth it to make the association with the vet clinic worse. Going back to sort of referring those cases, I would say that there would be a number of behaviour modification things that vets could actually do themselves, but I think that vets just have to be honest with their limitations, mostly in terms of time, and the fact is you're qualified, you know, you know the theory, you're qualified to do this sort of stuff, and so if clients have the finances to be referred, it really should be something that in most cases they should be referring to a behaviour specialist. 
Absolutely. And one of the things I was really struggling with in practice was a 15 minute consult where I have to vaccinate a puppy, worm a puppy, flee a puppy, talk to them about desexing. And then at the end, there's always the behavior question and you go, I could have spent the half an hour on the behavior question by itself. So that I, I do struggle with that still in practice is like, well, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that sort of in-depth discussion for the behavior. Being able to give some basic advice and telling them where the right places to go are is really helpful. I mean, I don't think that's a behavior, a specific problem with VET and that there's so many issues where I think we have to be a lot more confident rather than to just try and cram half an hour worth of information into a five minute slot, actually say, hang on, I can't give you proper advice and do a proper job with your animal. Let's do a revisit where we focus specifically on this problem so that if in the case of the behavior, they don't have the means to go and refer, at least the vet in that situation is dealing with that problem with enough time. Yeah, and I used to do that. I used to send them away and go, cool, we're gonna book in a another session and, and specifically talk about this. There's plenty of behavior problems that we could talk about and we could spend hours talking about them, but I would say the most common one that vets see in practice is separation anxiety. So are you happy to give us a little bit of a, a summary on your perspective on separation anxiety, sort of starting with what the red flags are? Yeah, so I'm actually gonna start with separation related behavior is an umbrella and a lot of these separation related behaviors get called separation anxiety but we actually need to work through a diagnostic pattern so we know whether or not the behavior that we're seeing whether it is related to anxiety or whether it's related to boredom or playing and vocalizing because they're playing or we'll come back to that in a minute anyway so some of the red flags that i hear often the big ones toileting inside escaping or trying to escape and even destruction because they're trying to escape destruction in general whether it's their bed or the actual door those actually have two very different things that they're doing here vocalizing self-inflicted injuries dogs will lick themselves or chew their own paws if they're that highly upset about being left alone and even um, aggression when somebody's trying to leave they'll actually try and prevent somebody from leaving by going to aggression but there's also less scary sounding things like drooling, spending their time panting, not wanting to eat when they're at home, pacing the house, and those signs. Actually, they show that the cortisol in those animals can be just as high as ones that are actually destroying the house and trying to escape. Every dog may show these signs differently, and just because your dog is just a bit uncomfortable or seems uncomfortable when you leave home doesn't mean it's not as stressed as the one that's actually trying to escape the house. So when we look at these signs, we have to make sure that they aren't related to medical diagnoses. So toileting, for example, can be lack of ability to hold the bladder, or it can be actually digestive upsets, or even in older dogs, cognitive disorder, which is similar to Alzheimer's in people. So destruction can be boredom, but it can also be actually trying to escape or it can be just needing an outlet for the anxiety that they have. And so we always recommend videoing animals with separation related behaviors so that we can figure out what the actual diagnosis is. And if it is separation anxiety, there's some other questions we can ask like, whether your animal follows you around the house all the time or whether even, like I've got one case that 
you let it out to the toilet outside and it won't go to the toilet unless somebody's outside with it because yeah. it struggles with being alone out in the garden. So then if that's the sort of starting point with separation anxiety, you know, the video's been sent and the vet's fairly confident that we're dealing with separation anxiety, what would you say would be the next step in terms of dealing with it? We would have to then look at the two things would be the behaviour modification plan, plus or minus meds. And meds is, is dependent on the severity. So there's two styles of medications that we can use for these things. So we can use the long-term meds, like clomipramine, which is clomicam, which is the only one registered in New Zealand, or fluoxetine, which is registered overseas. But the problem with those drugs is they take six to eight weeks to kick in. When I was a young vet, I was like, we'll put the dog on this for two weeks and see if it makes a difference. Oh, it didn't make a difference. Oh, I wonder yeah. why. Yeah, six to eight weeks. So in the meantime, though, there's other drugs that we can use, the benzodiazepines, like diazepine or alprazolam, for events where we're going to have to leave, or something like trazodone, really useful trazodone is, and gabapentin, also yep. very useful, especially if there's some pain involved, gabapentin could be quite useful. So those drugs we would give before leaving. Some of the problems with the short-term drugs is that they can produce the learning that there is occurring, which is also possibly a good thing. So it depends on where we are in the plan, where they're at the point where they actually, there is no way they were going to have any learning when that person left anyway, in which case it's quite useful. And also we do have to be careful of like inhibition of aggression. But in a separation anxiety dog, that's probably very unlikely to be a problem. A lot of vets used to use ACP traditionally, but ACP yeah. is not actually an anxiolytic. It has some sedative and muscle relaxant effects, but it doesn't actually have any effect on anxiety. So that's yeah. something we have to be aware of. Good to know. So assuming that we haven't, just for argument's sake, it's not severe enough at this stage that we're going to go down the route of doing medications, you can go look at all these sort of approaches to behavior modification for treating separation anxiety. What would you say are the main ones to consider and can you sort of give us a little bit of a, a summary as to how you'd approach a behaviour modification for separation anxiety? So you would start with looking at there's two things we would look at as pre-departure cues and how your dog copes with things like does it notice when you go to pick up your handbag, go to go out the door or your keys or is are there things that start the anxiety building up slowly. So dogs are really good at associative learning so they can actually associate that you've gone to get your coat and then your keys and then their anxiety is actually building while you're getting ready to leave. So we would look at those and see whether or not we can change the pattern. So we would randomly do them throughout the day, pick up the keys, go to the door, dog goes huh? and then you go oh actually no I'm not going and put them back down again. So they become less predictive. Another key part of it is teaching your dog to be able to settle and cope independently. So throughout the day, we wouldn't be leaving at these points, but we would offer them a puzzle toy or Kong while they were alone in a room, not locking the door because that can cause some issues with, you know, they start worrying about the door being locked and seeing whether or not they can settle alone in the house with you still there, but they're not following you everywhere and they occasionally have some time alone and they occasionally go outside so that you're building up their tolerance to being a little bit more independent. And then lastly, we have departures. So actual, we would keep them really low to begin with. So it would literally, some of the cases I would literally go, you go out the door, you come back in the door. 
and see whether the dog has any issues with that. And then you'd slowly build it up, actually making it predictable that these departures are different to your usual departures, so that they know that if you go this particular queue, I'm leaving right now, see you later dog, they know that you're going to come back and that it's only going to be a short time and that it's going to be predictable. So that's something that we would do and build up slowly. I always find we always go really well for a little while and then we have a plateau or we may even go back down the step and that's yeah. normal and then we, we start you know building back up again and they actually after they've had that dip or that plateau that they actually go and increase in capability quite quickly. Mm. That's how we would do it. It's actually quite useful having lockdown because they're actually at home all day so they can actually start practicing those behaviors. That's sort of one side of the coin. I imagine that there'd be some owners that might do the work with you and then not help themselves. Um, like I've read that if you fuss over, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you fuss over your dog all the time, then when you leave, you're more likely to get separation anxiety. Whereas if around the departure time and the coming back, you completely ignore your dog. Is that fair to say? And do you think that the owners are, can significantly contribute to things plateauing or going back down? I think if your dog is never used to being alone, then that would significantly make them more likely to develop it later. So if you never let them settle elsewhere and they always stick beside you, I don't think over-affection is actually going to add to their anxiety. I think, in fact, that affection isn't something that we should withhold from them. And in they may actually be quite concerned if you come home and you don't pay them attention and could create sort of conflicts like, huh, I don't understand why they're not responding to me like they normally would. To sort of continue on the line of the owners and the ways in which they're contributing to the problem, obviously the behaviour modification and the medications and all that, that's looking at the treatment side of things. But is there much training in terms of trying to avoid these animals becoming separation anxiety dogs in the first place? I think there's been a real culture shift with the way that we treat our pets in the last sort of 20 years, you know, where you used to leave your dog outside and I would suspect there's probably less separation anxiety 20 years ago than there is now. What are ways in which owners are contributing to that separation anxiety and are there things we as vets can do to encourage owners or help improve owners the way that they're treating their puppies to avoid them becoming separation anxiety dogs in the future? Yeah, so we can slowly introduce them to being alone. Actually having some time alone, we can introduce a crate as a puppy as long as we do it slowly and with positive interactions. So a lot of people expect puppies to go into a crate or be alone suddenly for hours. And that is actually creating your separation anxiety because they are very social creatures. They expect to be with other animals and actually sudden isolation and doing it for a long time can create separation anxiety. So being aware of that and being aware that puppies are gonna expect to be with you to begin with and then building up a slow tolerance to being left alone is certainly important for those puppies. I don't think over coddling dogs is actually something, I think it's more to do with actual being left alone for certain periods of time is the um, important thing so they do need to be learned to be independent. So there's no research to suggest that the coddling is contributing to that problem? No. 
like they, they definitely form strong attachments to humans and that's to be expected that's what they were bred and domesticated to do and I think actual positive reinforcement as in praise and toys and treats actually build a stronger human animal bond but and, and actually they become more settled and capable of being able to cope with people going away because they know they're going to come back as mm. long as we're consistent with it yeah though the only reason i ask is because there's a lot of little small fluffy dogs that the owners will sort of carry them around and carry them and across the road and probably were poorly socialized as puppies so don't tend to like other dogs and it seems that they've sort of created this relationship where they're so reliant on the owner even though that's a positive and a good bond I don't know if there's any research behind this but I feel like they've created such a reliance on that relationship with the owner and I, I do wonder whether the lack of socialization with other dogs also contributes to it too I think lack of socialization in general would definitely contribute to it. So the thing with socialization isn't necessarily just to other dogs, but it's to different humans and to experiences like being left alone. So if a puppy was never left alone at all during its socialization period, it would really struggle with that later on. Do you have any other tips or tricks with separation anxiety you'd like to share without giving away your entire no. training? Um, <laughs> Sometimes we find a lot of destructive behaviour is related to boredom. So for things like uh, Kongs and puzzle toys and things like that can help with that. So they are you know, using their brain when you're away and not destroying the bed. But also there was a, a thing about adding in another dog. It was a really popular thing at one point. But it's actually interesting. So if, if the separation related behaviour is due to boredom, then sure, adding in a second dog can help, but with separation anxiety, it's actually related to the relationship with the owner. So we've found in those cases it hasn't made much of a difference. Yeah, I think we've probably covered the most important parts of separation anxiety, unless there's anything else that you wanted to mention. I can imagine your qualification must be quite interesting, and there's heaps that I'd like to ask you about. But is there any sort of particular light bulb moments when you were doing your training that you're like, oh, wow, I wish I'd known that as a vet? It's funny because it all sort of built up quite quickly. So there was a big thing about dominance in dogs. The, the definition of dominance is that it's between two members of the same species and over a resource. So quite a lot of the word dominance has just been used everywhere and in every situation for dogs, including you know, your dog is being dominant and those are dominant behaviours and that we need to be the the dominant dog in a relationship with our dog. It was really interesting how widespread those things are when the definition is really just between two dogs and over a resource. And that yeah. dogs don't form the same social hierarchy as wolves. So wolves have an alpha pair and those two, the only two that breed and, and the rest of them actually help raise those puppies. Dogs don't do that. They're really socially loose and they all breed and they all interact and they all they might hunt together, but that's about the only activity that they do in a big group. But they're also really social as well, so they're not used to being alone. And I'm not quite sure how we ended up with dominance theory and that we had to dominate our dogs and use punishment was the next step from that to teach our dogs when actually they learn so much faster using positive reinforcement techniques. So yeah. It's an interesting one that just exploded out of some papers where they looked at wolf hierarchies in a small area with 
limited resources. Yeah, that's quite fascinating because I'd always sort of assumed that dog hierarchy was very similar to wolves. Yeah, really yeah. interesting, aren't they? Domestication has really changed the dog behaviour and also their social hierarchies and as well as how they look. Obviously, a pug does not look like a wolf anymore. When we bred dogs away from wolves, if we breed them back to look like wolves, the behaviour doesn't go with it. So yeah. they bred German Shepherds to look more like wolves and they've bred them backwards. But yeah. they still show dog behaviour more than wolf behaviour. Thanks heaps for your time, Lucy. Um, before you go, can you just let us know where we can find out more about you and in terms of if we're wanting to refer cases to you? Awesome. So you can find me at vetbehaviour.co.nz. My email address is lucy at vetbehaviour.co.nz. And you can find me on all social platforms. I've got Facebook is Veterinary Behaviour Services NZ, and that's the same on LinkedIn. And Instagram is Vet Behaviour NZ. Awesome. Cheers for your time, Lucy. All right. Thank you very much, Steve.